Hey, this is Grant Statham, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. All of a sudden, he woke up, up on the side of the mountain in the middle of the night. You're just about at the top, and the whole slope rips out, and the lowest person on the slope got buried 400 centimeters deep. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your guest host for this week, Dom Baker from Nelson, BC. Thanks to Caleb for having me back, and a big thanks to Wes Gregg for producing this episode. The Avalanche Hour is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside, with additional support by InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, it's early June, and it sure is feeling like summer here in southern BC. The garden is a riot, skiing is getting pretty desperate, and the mountain biking is all time. I was almost tempted to go for a swim in the lake yesterday. It's not quite there yet. I hope wherever you are, you're enjoying the beauty of spring and looking back on a fun and safe winter. I have a great interview for you today with Grant Statham. Grant is a visitor safety specialist with Parks Canada in Banff, Yoho, and Kootenai National Parks. His team is responsible for the highway avalanche control, public avalanche forecasting, and search and rescue throughout those parks. Grant has been a climber, avalanche forecaster, and IFMGA mountain guide for 30 years and has been with Parks Canada for 17 of those. He also works as an avalanche risk consultant and an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. We recorded this interview back in March and we covered a lot of ground from his career as a guide to several notable rescues during his time as a visitor safety specialist with Parks Canada. We encountered a couple minor Zoom hiccups along the way but it was a great conversation and one that I hope you enjoy. Without any further ado, here's Grant Statham. So Grant, welcome to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Thanks for joining me, man. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, it's awesome that you're uh, willing to take the time and I've been looking forward to speaking with you. You've got quite the the background and, you know, a, a guy that I've looked up to for a long time. You got quite the resume, you know, um, ACMG mountain guide and working in uh, parks, visitor safety, which has got to be one of the crazier jobs in the, the avalanche industry and you know you've done research on risk and you know some pretty cool alpine accomplishments to your to yourself as well and so i'd love to get into all of that but i was just kind of hoping we could start with your background maybe you could give us a sense of where you're from and how you got into playing in the mountains and then you know how that led to working in the mountains sure uh well i'm originally from british columbia i grew up in Machosan, which is just outside of victoria kind of halfway between victoria and souk on vancouver island i grew up on the beach um, so like total shift to go to the mountains, but, um, I had this unbelievable view across Juan de Fuca straight to the Olympic mountains, right, right from the kitchen table. So I grew up like, you know, looking across the ocean at those big peaks of Mount Olympus. And I was always, you know, had the binoculars out. And so I was always keen. My dad, uh, had me outside a lot. We did lots of fishing and lots of canoeing and backpacking. And we went over the Olympic mountains backpacking a few times. So I was always into it. And climbing is what I wanted to learn how to do. I got the chance to try it out. Uh, I think when I was in high school, there was a summer camp that you know, took us out rappelling and it kind of you know, got the bug. And so I really got into it in my last couple of years of high school, I changed my school schedule all around so I could rock climb as much as possible. But my mom had this rule. She said, uh, there'll be no alpine climbing unless you take a course. So I uh, 
I flew to Banff like the day after I graduated from high school. I flew up to Calgary, came to Banff, took an intro to mountaineering course um, for a week up on the Wapta, and then uh, returned home and spent the summer in Victoria. Uh, ended up climbing to the summit of Mount Olympus in uh, late August of that year. So that was a real highlight. You know, as a kid, that was like the pinnacle. And uh, like I moved to Banff two months later, basically thinking I'd be here for a year. You know, the, I think mom's idea was Grant would go to business school a year later. Um, but, you know, <laughs> here we are. How much for that idea? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the mountains are calling. So you got into climbing in a big way, I guess, in the Rockies. I know... Um, you know, we have a mutual friend there, Mark Austin, yeah. CP Avalanche uh, Tech, and he was telling me about some of your first ascents, like as far back as like 18, 19 years old. Yeah, I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through like, you know, getting after it in, in those early days in the Rockies. Yeah, those were good days, of course. Like everybody looks back and thinks about how fired up they were in the start. I mean, I got to Banff when I was 17 years old and, um, you know, I, I had an ice axe on my backpack and I owned a rope. And the first day I got here, I met a guy named Tom Fail. He worked in shipping receiving at the ski hill. And uh, he asked me if I climbed and then he loaned me all his gear. And uh, a couple of days later, I hitchhiked to Canmore and went to the junkyards and went soloing and bouldering. First time ever ice climbing, really. And then by the end of the winter, Tom and I just, we'd gone for it like crazy. I had a great schedule. I was a waiter at the ski hill. So I worked uh, nights and had weekends off and Tom had the same schedule. So we just we had a great winter. You know, by the end of the winter, we climbed oh, so many classics. We climbed Polar Circus. We climbed Curtain Call. Um, lots of steep stuff. And just, you know, I was on fire. I just absolutely loved it. So that hooked me completely that first winter. And uh, there was no, you know, there was no going back to Victoria after that, at least for a while. <laughs> Man, I bet. Now, were you a skier in those days as well? You know what? Uh, I was becoming one, but not really. Like, honestly, I, 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 when I was leaving for Banff, had my climbing gear pack just as I was leaving. Somebody said to me, you should get some skis. I didn't have a job yet. So yeah, that's a pretty good idea. I should get some skis. I skied a few times as a kid. We used to go on these you know, school ski trips uh, to Mount Washington. You know, we'd get in the bus down in Victoria and burn up to Mount Washington. But really, and I loved it, but I hadn't done much. And I was really moving there to climb. And I was moving there for like a year. You know, I was coming back, going to school. So it wasn't really on my mind. Uh, but then I got some skis and I ended up getting a job at a ski hill. So, uh, you know, it all kind of worked. But I definitely, uh, climbing was number one and skiing was, I was learning to ski on the other spare time. That's cool. Are you using skiing as maybe an access tool to get to some of your alpine objectives? A little bit at that point. Yeah, yeah, probably. I didn't. I mean, I didn't do much ski touring and our equipment was uh, slender those days. So I probably didn't even have ski touring gear. I don't know how I would have approached some of that stuff. But yeah, you know how it is in the beginning. You're sort of scratching it together. No doubt. So then how did you get into the guiding process? Um, well, actually, it was, uh, I guess it was the summer. Uh, so I'd stayed for the summers, you know, and I started alpine climbing and rock climbing in the summer. So summer of 87 was my first year here. And uh, got, you know, same story for the summer, just went out constantly, worked as a waiter. I was a waiter at the Rosencrown and Banff. So I had, you know, all, every day to climb. I was out constantly. And um after that year, the next year I got a job teaching rock climbing uh, at a uh, army cadet camp in Banff. It's kind of a classic way a lot of guides I know around here got started. And so I actually was an employee of the military and I was teaching army cadets in the summer. It was a, like a long running program around Banff that has tons of history. I bet you know lots of people who would have started there. So I was one of them. And, uh, you know, it was a six week program in the summer. We taught rock climbing and then we taught mountaineering. And Honestly, I was just a little bit older than the cadets I was teaching. I'm not at all sure I was qualified to be doing any of this, but I was teaching them how to rock climb. And so there I met uh, met the first guides 
other than the course that I'd taken a few years earlier, this is the first place I met any guides. And, and it was actually a guy named Dan Griffith in the beginning who cornered me and said, you know, do you, what are you doing in the winter? I told him I worked at the ski hill. And he convinced me. He said, you should become a guide. You know, you know how to ski. You like to climb. It's a great way to earn a living. You should uh, think about it. And that kind of, you know, set the bar. And then actually it was uh, Dave Scott, you know, Mark's buddy. Dave and I worked together there. And, and Dave convinced me to take the assistant alpine guides course the following summer. And, at, you know, at this point, I was still going back to university. And I just thought, I always like a good challenge. Oh, this sounds challenging. Sure, I'll, let's do this. So uh, I took the course uh, summer of 80, 89, I guess it was, and, and I passed, which, you know, then I, it wasn't honestly until I passed that course when I thought, oh, okay, well, listen, I guess I could earn a bit of money doing this, uh, you know. So that kind of kept going from there. But I really, I had no plans to do that. It was just kind of happening. Everything was just happening right in front of me at the beginning. Sounds like it was unfolding for you. That's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes I guess you just go for it and uh, the occasional door opens for you. So from then, did you get into, it was it mainly alpine guiding and rock or was it, did you do the full mountain guide right off, off the bat there? Uh, I went, I went the distance the whole way. I mean, by that point in the winter, like after I worked the first winter um, as a waiter, uh, the following year I got a job as a ski patroller at Sunshine Village. So that's the second year I started there. And that's when I started learning first aid and emergency response. And I had a little bit about avalanches and, um, started taking avalanche courses and uh, I got exposed to that stuff. So no, I was pursuing, I mean, I went through the climbing guide program first uh, cause that was my, you know, I was better at that as I was still learning the ski tour, but I really went through kind of about at the same time, the skiing and the climbing. And it was working at the ski hill. I was pretty much almost a full guide and I was still working at the ski hills. And then just for my last year, I, I quit working at the ski hills and got a job with that helped me polish it off and pass my last uh, ski guide exam, which was in uh, 1993, I think. So it was quick. It was a quick transition. Um, so after you got your guide, uh, your guide certification, were you into heli skiing or where did that go uh, for your winter work after that? For two years, I was into heli skiing. Yeah, after I left the ski resort, um, I worked at uh, CMH heli skiing for two years. I started at CMH Caribou's. And I think that was in uh, 92, 93. And then I worked CMH Adamus for a year. And, um, <laughs> you know, I missed climbing, to be honest with you. I, uh, I thought about ice climbing. I thought about all these new routes I wanted to do. And, um, and I wasn't really wanting to be a full-time heli-ski guide. It was never anything I really wanted. So a couple of years with CMH, but um, I pulled the pin in 94 and uh, moved on to some other stuff from there. Right on. So you um, currently work at uh, Parks Canada as a visitor safety specialist. And uh, just to jump forward a few years here, there's like a pretty tragic winter back in 2003 and, you know, some pretty significant events and that sort of led to your getting hired by Parks. I was just wondering if you'd kind of launch into that, uh, that story and some of the circumstances that surrounded you getting hired. Well, if you, you mentioned it there, but if you remember back, it was the winter of... Um... 2002, 2003, really bad winter in Canada. And uh, 20, 29 people ended up getting killed in avalanches. It's still the, the worst winter for fatalities. Uh, two of them were big ones. Uh, one of them was uh, at the Durand Glacier, guided group with seven uh, fatalities, so it was super tragic. And that happened in late January. And then it was like 10 days later, uh, up Connaught Creek in Glacier National Park, there was a, a great big avalanche that took out an entire school group, uh, 17 people grade 10 students from a Calgary private school and seven of them ended up getting killed, seven 15 year old kids. So just terrible. And, um, you know, I was guiding still at that time. I remember I was in the Purcells teaching a CAA course at the time and um, 
getting the news on these, especially back to back. It was just, it was rocking. And I just remember thinking, holy shit, seven dead children. Wow, boy, something's going to change. I don't know what it is, but uh, that's a big deal in a national park. And sure enough, um, what happened is Parks Canada undertook a, a review of all their public safety systems and, and uh, hired some consultants and had a report returned to them with 36 recommendations about how to improve public safety. And uh, I, uh, they hired a guy to implement it. And somebody sent me the job application. And, you know, at this point, I was married. I had, um, I had a five or a six-year-old at the time. And I, <laughs> I'd actually just lit my hand up with some white gas that summer and, like, had to, like, lose a whole summer of work from guiding because I burnt my hand. And so I was feeling a little vulnerable. And there along comes this job. And I thought, well, that looks interesting. Maybe I'll try that. So I put my hat in the ring, and um, I got the job which uh, surprised me. But um, yeah, that's how it started. My, so my job when I started was a two-year contract and it was to implement the uh, recommendations that were contained in that review. So what changes in, in parks came about from that that you were, you were implementing? Is there you know, a couple that come to mind? No, I'd never done anything like that before. You know, if I think about it, what was kind of neat for me is like, I'd never been in this world. I just was guiding, climbing, doing research, working on stuff like that. I was not paying attention to things like that at all. And all of a sudden, so I, I think I had a benefit, to be honest with you, is I came in uh, with a completely clean slate. And so what I did is read that report, you know, over and over and over and sort of went through those 36 recommendations and came up with five projects that I proposed to implement that would fulfill the uh, recommendations. And so those were um, one of them. The first one was to build an icon-based avalanche warning system. So if you look at the map, actually Avalanche Canada's map with the icons all over it, that's, that was the pitch, that map, actually. Got that's the idea awesome. off of um, television weather forecast maps that you used to see, you know, they still standing up in front of that and they had the lightning and the temperature, used that as the pitch. So that was uh, that to build an icon based, which ultimately became the danger scale with the danger scale icons on it. Uh, the other one, and sort of the main pitch to get the job was to build a terrain classification system because uh, I could see through those recommendations that if we, if we had some way of classifying terrain uh, that for the public, then this is going to make a huge difference, really be helpful, and it's going to fulfill six or seven of these recommendations. So uh, that turned into the avalanche terrain exposure scale. Um, also, we built trailhead maps and signs. So we all the sort of mapping you see at trailheads in the national parks now, that was when we started doing that. And a really big one for Parks Canada was um, the implementation of regulations and policy around custodial groups. So groups, school kids, basically, they had no rules for any of that. And so they had been criticized pretty heavily for not having anything in place for school groups who could just go into any kind of avalanche terrain anytime they wanted, which you know, ultimately led to this accident. So, uh, you know, that's where the eight scale actually helped because we used the terrain classification system to do the regulation work on the custodial groups. And the last one was uh, we started Avalanche Canada. So it was, um, it was called a recommendation to contribute to the start of a national avalanche center in Canada. And so I was lucky enough to be on the founding group of that thing. So for the first number of years, uh, we dug up the cash. Parks Canada was a contributor. And I, I really learned about bureaucracy and built the governance and kind of started that whole thing. So yeah, it was a, a complete whirlwind, man, from being a guy and being outside all the time to working on stuff like that. Whew. No <laughs> kidding. Yeah. That's amazing. So when you say you guys started Avalanche Canada, prior to that, was it just the Canadian Avalanche Association and Canadian Avalanche Centre that were kind of doing the yeah. public forecasting? Or how did that yeah. Work? So, well, there's a Canadian Avalanche Association, which, you know, you and I are both members of. 
and that's represents the professionals. But kind of the history of that is like through the nineties as uh, backcountry recreation was growing and getting more and more popular, there was this gulf, uh, this void in British Columbia, like no avalanche bulletins and people are starting to get killed outside of the national parks and they needed to fill that void. And so the CAA really just stepped in and started to make avalanche bulletins um, using like, you know, the only funding they had was member dues and stuff like that. I was actually a contract forecaster for them in the late nineties. Um, and, and they kept pushing the BC government for some funding and trying to say, you know, you've got you to gotta deal with this. You've got people in avalanche terrain. There's more and more people out here and, you know, nothing ever happened. The Trudeau uh, accident happened. Uh, I think that was in around 99 or 98 where Michelle Trudeau was killed in an avalanche. Super tragic, of course. That was the start of the Canadian Avalanche Foundation. But still, uh, no money from the government for public avalanche forecasting. And then that winter, 2003, that tipped the scales, you know, that did it. And so this was outside of my work from Parks Canada, but um, the British Columbia government commissioned a review of their own, and it recommended the development of a national avalanche center. And so um, the CAA kind of took it upon themselves to actually sort of be the people who started that. And then I was one of the contributors. I was Sir Parks Canada's representative. But there was a group of people uh, from different agencies that came together to build the, the center. And it was uh, they cut the ribbon on the center, I think, in 2004, Canadian Avalanche Center. Right on. Okay, cool. And then from there, it became Avalanche Canada later on. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's always been, you know, everyone gets uh, Canadian Avalanche Center and CAA. It's all mixed up. So um, they were really similar organizations. And then Avalanche Canada, you could see that it was going to be the bigger one. I mean, there's just so many people, the public. And then I think it must have been five or maybe more years ago when they decided to split, uh, rebrand it to Avalanche Canada and be completely dedicated to public service. And the Canadian Avalanche Association has really returned back to its roots of a member-driven organization. You know, but they did swell up for a number of years because they were handling all the public stuff. And but these days, Avalanche Canada, uh, well-funded, and uh, they look after all that stuff. So the CAA is back to its roots. Nice one, awesome. And then the the eights rating—that's something that's been implemented across Canada and to a certain degree in the states as well. It must have been. Uh, Satisfying to see that kind of stuff come into uh, acceptance and, and general use. Very. Yeah. You know, I, it is a really neat feeling. I got to say, I see it all over the place in different countries and you kind of walk by the kiosk on your way to the lift and you look in and you see it in Spanish or Japanese or you know, some other language. It is, it, I, I got to admit, I take quite a bit of satisfaction in that. It's fantastic. It, uh, it really took off. You know, I kind of knew it would if it was done well because it was a, such a gap and, you know, working heli skiing, I, I, I forgot to fill in. I also worked for another nine years for another heli ski company. So by that point, when I started with parks, I had a decade of heli skiing under me and we're just so used to um, terrain magnitude, you know, and on high hazard days, you go to low magnitude terrain and on, you know, low hazard days, that's when you can really lay it down and ski the big lines, but you have to be able to understand the, the magnitude of the terrain to be able to, to do that offset. And uh, there was nothing around for the public at that point. Really, we just had avalanche bulletins that talked about a dangerous rating and, and left the terrain to people to just sort of figure out on their own. So it did seem to me like an obvious gap, actually. I'm not surprised it took off. Makes sense. It's a pretty fundamental thing. And it's something that gets taught at all the levels of avalanche education, at least in Canada. Anyway, I think about like AST1 courses, they're talking about the scale and uh, they're still talking about it in the professional level courses too so yeah it's, yeah it's pretty awesome because it's both it's both succinct and concise but it's also really quite specific as to what terrain features fit into to each level so it can be super useful 
it, it really does span a range. Like you can use it in the simplest way, just like really simple, just for some straightforward sentences that hopefully uh, if you have a very basic understanding of avalanches, you can, you can get it. Or, or you, yeah, like you can dive right in there and you can get super technical and look at the parameters of avalanche frequency and runout distance and, you know, specific slope angles and shapes. So I, I, I think that's actually, for me, that was um, kind of a fundamental under- realization of how to build products. And I've built other products like that since then when we have, uh, like AIDS has what we call a technical model, which, uh, and we also have the public communication model. So that really the way that started, I was just building a public communication model. My first versions, they had a green circle, a blue square, and a black diamond, just like the ski areas. And then I was writing out simple, really simple descriptions of avalanche terrain. And uh, we were making some progress until uh, the guys in Rogers Pass, with Bruce McMahon particularly, said, you know, they were like, this is good, but this is not good enough. You cannot ask me to classify terrain based on this simple scale. And they proposed something similar to the technical model. And that's when I just sort of lit up and went, wait a second, you're onto something here. And then I realized, you know what, you got to satisfy a couple audiences here. You got to satisfy the technical people, like people like you and me. Avalanche forecasters, you know, are science based and technical, and they, they don't like it when they get glossed over and when things get simplified. They really want to be specific and detailed. So you got to speak to them, but then you can't give that to the public because that doesn't work. So um, you have to make, we make two systems, but they speak the same language. It's almost like the same thing in two different languages one's technical and one's simple for the public. Amazing. It seems like there's quite a group effort into getting that thing off the ground and refining it to where it is now, eh? It really was a big group effort. Yeah, that was one of the things I made a big part of my work was just trying to rally people. Like all these projects I'm telling you about here tonight, they certainly weren't me alone. There was like tons of people helping me. Lots of, you know, I was able to draw on all my friendships and relationships from guiding and heli skiing and uh, the people I'd worked with at uh, the CAA and CAA instructors and ski patrollers. Like It was great. I pulled everybody in and you know, especially after that big accident at Rogers Pass, there was a real spirit here of wanting to contribute because we knew big changes were afoot and people wanted to help. And so I had lots of people who were able to help and lend their expertise. It was it was great. That's fantastic. It's a, it's a pretty tight-knit organized, or, uh, community, really. For sure. Yeah. Done, man. So um, that was a two-year contract, you said. Uh, to yeah. implement those. And then did you stay on with parks mm-hmm. right from then? Or can you talk us through some of that? Yeah. Um, so I basically got the work done in a little bit less than two years, which now that I worked for parks for so long, I don't really know how that happened. It kind of reminds me of my first year of ice climbing. <laughs> I just go, wow, I bet I couldn't do that again. But um, anyway, it was, so it was quite successful and I think they were pretty happy. So they offered me a full-time job. Uh, continuing in that role, they expanded. The, my original title was Avalanche Risk Specialist which is a funny story around that, but they expanded the title to mountain risk specialist, um, made me really responsible for what they liked to call technical policy. But basically I was building avalanche forecasting systems and working on um, risk management systems for our rescue programs and uh, really turned into a year round job. And I lasted in that. I stayed there in that position for about 10 years. That prior to doing visitor safety, that was all a, like a fully separate kind of role within the organization? Yeah, well, I was part of the visitor safety program, but my job was policy. And so I, um, you know, I was, I, I began to work in the conceptual model, uh, working on AIDS, implementing programs, helping with the development of the Canadian Avalanche Center, uh, building the Avalex avalanche forecasting system that we use now. So Really, I was building avalanche forecasting systems and then working on risk management programs for Parks Canada. I got a little bit of field time with Parks Canada, but mostly it was policy work. Uh, but I loved it. It was so interesting. 
And that's when I met you because uh, the way I was trying to get my uh, mountain fix was uh, they gave me lots of time off to still guide. So I got a job at Mustang Powder. And I think I put eight seasons in a Mustang. That's where I met you. That's right. Yeah, that's so I would, right. I would get my intellectual fix at Parks Canada, and then I would get my mountain fix by uh, guiding Catskin. And uh, uh, also ski touring. I was going to Europe and starting to do you know a couple trips a year as well. So uh, that's awesome. I'm glad you brought up the conceptual model there too, because that's something else I want to talk about. I mean, it seems to me like this is an American podcast, as you as you know, and. Um, you know, we're making inroads into Canada here, just slowly taking over the place. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, what I think is so cool about the conceptual model is a few things. One, it was a pretty cross-border effort from from what I can tell. And then the other thing is, it's, at least in Canada, it's really widely used. Like from a personal standpoint, like uh, avalanche forecasting, I use it every day. Um, you know, we have the, some of the graphs that you guys put into that um, conceptual model embedded in the InfoX. So you've always got it as a quick reference, you know, when you're you're thinking about, uh, well, you know, what hazard level really are we at? And, um, you know, is that problem actually widespread or is it specific? Or, you know, we start thinking about uh, sensitivity to triggering, you know, is it touchy or is it stubborn? And having those terms well-defined and well laid out has, uh, if nothing else, definitely solved some uh, forecasting office debates, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Many of those now. Yeah. Yeah, you take us back, Grant, and just talk about like how did that become such a, a big document like this so well used and you know how did that big team of people come together? Um, well, the whole thing started as again of so many of these things. It was born originally when I started at Parks Canada and I had those recommendations. And you know, recommendation number one was to revise the avalanche danger scale and improve the language. And I had two years to deliver 36 recommendations. So I took a look at the first one and went, I don't think so. I need more than two years to do that. So I built a different avalanche warning system called the Backcountry Avalanche Advisory, which lasted for a number of years. That's where the icons came from. Those are the icons that now live on the danger scale. So they eventually all merged. But the, the idea of, of improving the danger scale was always right there from when I started. And I was always getting cornered by people and saying, you should take that on. And so after um, delivering the sort of original mandate, I guess, and then deciding to stay on, I started hearing from some of my American friends who I really didn't know all that well at the time. I would be Carl Berkland, and at the time it was Knox Williams. I'd been hearing sort of rumblings that they wanted to do some work on the danger scale as well. So bit by bit, we all got together. Bruce Tremper was in on that as well. And um, we just started talking. I kind of got to know those guys. I pulled in a few people from Canada, Claire Israelson, Chris Statham, Bruce McMahon was involved. And we just started working on this uh, with no mandate other than me trying to, you know, make conference calls and start talking to people about it. And I really got hung up on it in the beginning when I, I remember clearly asking everybody, okay, well, let's start with the basics here. What, what is avalanche danger? <laughs> and everybody was all over the place. And this is when we, I realized that nobody really had a clear understanding of the difference between risk, danger, and hazard. And uh, so th then we had to really go, okay, well, we got to start there. If we're going to revise the scale, we got to make sure we know what we're actually revising. Well, so you went full big picture there. I mean, you defined each individual avalanche problem and um, all the terms. That's really cool. So it must have been some amazing conversations that you guys had through that oh, process. It was incredible. I mean, you know what? We So we started on this for about a year and then, you know, we realized, oh my, we got no money. We're just doing this. We need to structure this better. So we actually, uh, Canadian Avalanche Association applied for a grant. We have funding from uh, the Canadian government for a bigger project. And uh, then we had money. And so we held a couple of workshops where the guys from the States came up and we had these two workshops in Canmore, which I'll, I'll never forget. We're in there arguing about 
you know, back and forth that means. And I remember finally standing up and wiping the board off tank and saying to everybody, okay, let's just forget about everything we think we know for just a second. Let's forget about the concept of snow stability and uh, these structures that we're used to. And let's just talk about avalanches. For Let's just start at the beginning on the whiteboard. And over the next two or three days, we built, I guess, what would be the very original framework of this thing. And it was rough. Like, you know, it was rough. But we knew we'd done something special. I'll never forget those meetings. They were exciting. We were going mountain biking and drinking beers in the evening and then working on this stuff during the day. And uh, Susan Hairsign was kind of steering us through this whole thing. And yeah, we did two of those and then ultimately ended up with a finished product. In the end, we, it's funny because the original job was to change the, the danger scale. Then we got sidetracked into all of this. So it took a while to get back to it, but we eventually went back and uh, revised the avalanche danger scale to the one that we use today. And then yeah, that kind of the rest is history. And really, you decided to uh, rewrite all of avalanche hazard forecasting processes uh, in the process of doing the danger scale, eh? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it was never, that was not the plan in the beginning. And we, you know, we lost it. It, it lasted for years. By the time I got the paper written, the project lasted 10 years. I mean, it just was epic. It went on forever. And, um, you know, there were some gaps in there. Knox Williams retired early on and Ethan Green came in, came on board. Um, it covered it took a long time to really get it finished but some of them were they were just really difficult topics contentious things and then in the end you know pascal hadley was also part of that group and i you know i formed a really close friendship with pascal we're super close friends today because of the work we did together there and he really was my key partner on finishing that thing off and on getting stuff down and he helped me write the paper that we published on it and yeah it was really a formative thing for me that's for sure i made a lot of close friends out of that and it's been exciting to see how uh, how it's been taken up Amazing. You've had quite a bit of research and uh, policy and stuff in your career. Um, it's super interesting stuff, Grant. I, I was wondering if maybe you'd uh, take us into the kind of next phase of your parks career there and talk a bit about visitor safety. I mean, that's a that's a wild job, and there's so many different things on the go there. I just wonder if you could give us a sense of what actually falls within your area of responsibility within the visitor safety uh, department. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, I work with a team in uh, Banff. Yoho and Kootenai National Parks, and um, there's 10 of us, and um, our responsibility is for all the avalanche forecasting for the highways inside the park, all the public avalanche forecasting, and all the search and rescue. That's really the core of the work of those three responsibilities inside those parks. Which on paper, I guess, is only three things, but that's a lot of things. You know, you've got several highways, not just one highway, and you've got, uh, what, three parks as well that you deal with? For public avalanche forecasts, is that correct? Yeah, three parks. Uh, uh, we have two two bulletin regions. Uh, we have about sixty five or seventy avalanche paths on the highway. Uh, Trans Canada Highway runs through there, so it's busy. Um, the park sees about four million visitors a year, and there's people everywhere in the backcountry. Um, and we do uh, we do a lot of rescues. We probably get about we get on average about three hundred and fifty calls a year. And we respond to about half of those calls. So you know, one hundred fifty to one hundred. 75 rescue. I can imagine that those span from like super technical to like fairly mundane as well in terms of rescue uh, capacity. I mean, you're doing everything eh? like swift water and campground and yeah. alpine and avalanche and all kinds of stuff. Is there any particular uh, rescue that comes to mind that you wouldn't mind recounting for us? Oh, 
You know, it's interesting. It doesn't take very long around here before there's so many of them in the back of your mind. It's funny, like they they blend after a while. I mean, I can certainly remember some pretty special ones. Uh, you know, we're fond of saying, we're fond of looking at each other and just like, you just can't make this up. I could never have imagined that this was going to happen, that I'm going to be here tonight doing this. I could never have thought of this. But here we are, and we try and smile and laugh our way through it. A um, couple memorable ones, I guess. Uh, recently, uh, the big house peak accident that killed the three Aloponists was I was really involved with that that was a really big one and uh and difficult um polar circus is one that comes to mind where we had a soldier a Canadian force a soldier killed in an avalanche with no transceiver on polar circus um lots of long searches extended searches uh for people in rivers and um yeah there's lots of them I mean just like you said at the beginning um you know, the bread and butter t t today, we got somebody with a broken leg, you know, and they're fairly straightforward rescues for us. Nice day, broken leg. Uh, we'll go get them with a heli sling and bring them out. And that stuff's pretty common. Um, you know, the big technical ones that sort of you really hear about, we don't get tons of those. We get a few of those a year. And we said, well, we train for that stuff because that's kind of the level we want to be at. But there isn't too many of those, really, fortunately. We just have a few a year of the really big ones. Well, yeah, that house peak one sure was big. I mean, big for media coverage and big for the, the scale and severity of the terrain and huge storm and just unbelievable. Yeah, they're on the east face of house peak. Um, they did it, you know, it's really an un, one of the greatest alpine climbs I know of, actually. They did a new route up the east face of house peak in like six hours. The previous ascent took five days. So, you know, unbelievable climbing. And then they disappeared on the descent. And um, we located them, one of them, but then a big storm came in. They didn't have any transceivers on, so we were, they got covered in snow and we couldn't, we couldn't find them. We knew roughly where they were, but not specifically. So we ended up super uh, dangerous place to work because it was right underneath this massive face. So um, we weren't comfortable just working in there without any, we couldn't, like we often will put bombs in above rescue sites, but we just didn't really, this face was too big for that. So we ended up working on the long line. And um, we still couldn't find him. After four attempts of probing, well, clipped to the long line still, we still couldn't find these guys. So we kind of, I honestly threw a Hail Mary a little bit. Um, and we went in with the dog and remained clipped to the log line and worked the dog. And the dog found them, yeah, all three of them. And so that was really, it was something. It was one of the most exciting things I've ever watched was watching uh, with Adam Sheriff out of Golden and his dog, Brooke, watching them work through the binoculars and then locate those guys uh, was pretty exciting stuff for us. Lots of high fives after we found them. No yeah. kidding. Amazing and relief for everybody involved, no doubt. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've talked a little bit about, um, you know, ice climbing accidents with folks without transceivers. And I just wanted to kind of dive into that a little bit because I've been thinking about, you know, in prep for this interview, I think in the last couple of days, it seems like a lot of, you know, public avalanche forecasts are thinking about people that are moving through the avalanche terrain, you know, maybe exposing themselves to various parts of the track or the start zone, whether they're shopping for good skiing or, you know, climbing a peak or something like that. But, you know, you're, you've kind of put some thought into people that are way down low near Valley Bottom, like cragging on a waterfall that, you know, may just happen to have a huge start zone way above their heads that, you know, may or may not be on their mind. So I was just wondering if you could talk us through some of that uh, avalanche hazard forecasting for ice climbers um, work that you've done. Sure. Um, well, I should start by saying that, like, the funny thing is, is I mean, I'm one of them. So I, I, I look back, I can't even remember what we used to do. Like, for the longest time, I'm, I'm sure we weren't wearing trans. I know we weren't wearing transceivers and we didn't have any gear. 
even when I was guiding, this is the thing that really hit me probably about 10 years ago. I realized, you know, here I am on my, where all my work days, I'm, you know, this avalanche pro, I'm teaching avalanche courses. I'm talking about it all the time. I'm doing it. And then I'm going ice climbing on my days off and I'm just doing what the rest of us do. And that's really thinking about it, but I'm just not as equipped properly. And I just, I don't know, the dichotomy didn't sit well and I wasn't alone. You know, a lot of us just started realizing, what are we doing here? This is wrong. We got to change this. So we started, um, we started hosting some workshops and I wrote a couple pieces. This has been going on for the better part of a decade, to be honest with you, trying to get traction. And, you know, it didn't get much traction in the beginning. Um, again, it was like, I know, I know it didn't get a lot of traction. You know, the common theme among climbers is, uh, you know, if I get hit by an avalanche here, I'm just going to get thrown off this huge cliff and I'll be dead. So why should I bother, you know, wearing the gear? But, you know, it is not a necessarily a bad argument unless you're the person trying to find them like I am now. And then you're up there for days and they don't see what we see, which is their families down at the road or back in the town, like asking you every day, did you find anything yet? Did you find anything? So, you know, we really just started working on awareness and it's been growing slowly. And um, this year was a breakthrough year. You know, um, unfortunately, I think some of it happens because there was a, a real tragedy. Two years ago, there was an accident on Massey's waterfall in field where one person was killed. And, uh, you know, like all these things, when that happens, uh, you know, we always pick up the traction. There's always a, a greater response after something like that happens. So, I think one of the legacies of Matthews is that it's really, it's really helped to raise awareness among ice climbers. Uh, you know, Avalanche Canada has really hopped on board now. And uh, we've, I really wanted to make some traction in the United States, actually, because, you know, like we've got pretty good awareness in our little valley here in Banff, but we have so many visitors here, tons of America. So one of my goals was to just get some better awareness in the United States. And I, I think that's also starting this year, too. We've had lots of contact with uh, people in the States, Alpinist Magazine ran a piece. Uh, the American Alpine Club was really into it, and they ran a piece this year as well. So I, I feel like we're making some traction finally. That's cool. It sounds like you still have the writing uh, as part of your life, hey, when you're, you know, you're not strictly doing hundreds of rescues and lots of avalanche forecasts. You're also still oh, writing, no. writing and thinking and all that stuff. Well, you know, you do, you do that stuff for all those years I did before. You just, you don't, I don't, I also like it. So no, I still do tons of stuff like that. I also do lots of consulting work still too. So I'm, I'm still doing lots of research work and lots of writing kind of a separate from Parks Canada. Just to, I like, I think I really like having uh, the mix of an intellectual type work where I get to think about things and I really enjoy writing. And also I like the mountain, you know, I like being on the sharp end in the mountains. So for me, kind of the ultimate is being able to have both going on. And I used to, ha I used to, uh, you know, get my intellectual stimulation with my policy job at parks and then I'd ski a Mustang and ice climb. And then I switched it. So now I get my, get my yayas out working day to day for parks, Canada, skiing and climbing and rescuing. And then I, I get my intellectual hit from, you know, projects on the side, consulting jobs and stuff like that. Oh, that's really cool. Grant, it's, it's a multifaceted career that you have going on here. Um, you've done a lot of like talk about risk in general. And I, I guess some of that, um, you know, maybe came from the conceptual model or whatnot, but I, I just wanted to ask you like, what is it about like risk and thinking about risk and explaining risk and breaking it down into the individual components. And, you know, maybe you can even dive into, you know, risk versus hazard versus danger. Um, I mean, you've done a TED talk on it. So I was just wondering if it, you could talk us uh, through a little bit about like, what is it that kind of captivates you about that stuff? Some of the basics. Sure. Maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm a total risk nerd. And it's funny, one risk nerd meets another one. You can tell right away. There's a lot of people that get pulled into the rabbit hole 
And, uh, you know, you find yourself down in the nitty gritty of discussing these things and you think uh, nobody else is interested in this. I hope nobody else is listening. But um, to be honest with you, it, you know, it truly started for me when I started, again, I started for Parks Canada and they handed me a box of business cards, believe it or not. And, and, and then somebody, I don't know who it was, whoever made my business cards, probably an admin assistant somewhere, they called me avalanche risk specialist. And I can set this on the card. I'm like, oh, okay, that's my new title. I'm not really sure what that means. I mean it. I looked it up. What does that mean? Uh, and then I, I sort of began to realize, like, I've been working by this point for 15 or 17 years in avalanches, and no one had ever taught me or talked to me or anything about risk, the word risk, and what it truly, really meant. And then so it kind of bugged me that it was in my title, and I didn't know what it meant. And then the Danger Scale project started, and that's when I started asking, well, what does actually hazard mean? What does risk mean? What is danger? And I really... Uh, I honestly just discovered this whole new world that I had never really known about. And it is the real, the world of risk assessment, like real, uh, real technical risk assessment that's done worldwide by all these different industries in finance and engineering and medicine. And, you know, you name it, it's done in the same way. All the details are different and some of it's calculated and some of it's estimated. And the, you know, the details are very different, but the overall structures are the same. And so I realized wait a second, there's a whole system here and we're not using it. And they, they use it in avalanche engineering. Like this stuff is not new for the engineers in our world who've been, you know, building defense structures and calculating impact pressures and things like that. And the Europeans, they've been using risk for years. But the recreation and the avalanche control side and the guiding and kind of the, the background that you and I have, they hadn't been using it before. So really what I did is I worked on that danger scale project and was able to define it in such a way that it works for both the engineering side, because we started with those, but also made it so that it fits the structures we use day to day in mountain travel and avalanche control and um, integrate those terms of likelihood and consequence and exposure and vulnerability and really flush them out as to what they mean and um, how they fit together and, you know, for me, it was the absolute biggest game changer in my whole career, for sure. And it's just because it's allowed me to explain the scenarios that I find myself in. Always, I can explain them in risk language easily. And um, it takes a long time to get used to how to do it. But once you kind of figure it out, it's actually easy. And it just, for me, I just found it really opened up an understanding. It allowed me to just about every single risk assessment I do or any analysis work I do, uh, has that it has that language in it and uses the structures of risk assessment. I, I think it's absolutely fundamental if you want to work in this business to know what that stuff means. It helps me to explain mountain travel. I can teach terrain better. Can teach avalanche forecasting. It's just been for me. It's been a real game changer. So I'm totally into it. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> well, it's cool that there's common language through all these different industries. And I mean, it seems like there's common language throughout a lot of the work that you've done too. I mean, you're talking about avalanche terrain exposure scale and that takes into account yeah. exposure and uh, vulnerability and that sort of thing. Um, how did that lead to doing a TED talk on, on risk? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, like it's a TED, it was a TEDx talk and they were coming to Canmore, actually my town. And I, I, uh, I like, you know, I, I actually, I, I taught for the CAA for years. I taught level ones, level twos, and then built and worked on the level three program. So I was always into presenting and I learned how to do that, you know, working for the CAA with my slide collection and our overheads and all this stuff we used to use. And, and then when I started working for parks, I started using PowerPoint because that's, you know, I couldn't, I, you know, I'll tell you something funny. I briefed uh, over the years, I briefed a number of ministers um, 
you know, before big announcements. And I remember briefing uh, David Anderson, Minister of the Environment, and I pulled out, I, I'm not kidding you, I had uh, pencil crayons and all this stuff scratched in this little white pieces of paper I was showing him about danger ratings. And after that, I thought, you know, I need to up my game here a little bit. <laughs> I can't <laughs> brief these guys with my nine-year-old son's crayons. So um, I was I learning to use PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like presenting. I really enjoy it. And so then this TED Talk came to town and I'd been working on risk and hazard for so long. At that point, I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and tell that story and I'm going to get do it in 12 minutes or whatever the time is. And I'm going to link it to everyday life and make it relevant for people. And I just took it on as a challenge, really. And so that's what led me to do that talk. That's cool. I remember you brought relationships into uh, the risk assessment yeah. a couple of times there. That's relevant for anybody in this world. I remember when I finished it, I came home and Leanne, my, my wife, she, she's, I said to her, uh, damn, I enjoyed that, but boy, I wish I get it. I wish I could do it again. There's a couple things I wish I could say differently. And she said, Oh, I think you'll get a chance to do it again. <laughs> I've probably <laughs> done it. I don't know. Hundreds of times since then, but at the time it really felt like this one-off thing, you know, I'm just going to do this. And I guess I'd like, I guess I wish a second chance to correct a few things. Oh, there we go. Sometimes it doesn't exactly come out the way that you expect it to. Hey? Yeah. Yeah, That's the sure. risk of putting yourself in front of an audience, I suppose. It's it true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right on, man. No, that's cool. It's good to talk to you about that kind of stuff. I was wondering, um, you know, just to generous with your time, Grant. I really appreciate it. And I was wondering if you kind of, you know, if, if there's any kind of like big uh, learning experiences or something like, what do you call them, like harsh uh, learning environments, you know, being outside and learning things the hard way. I was wondering if there's any case studies or stories that you wanted to share with us about uh, decisions yeah. or something like that? Well, yeah, you, you mentioned this to me earlier so when we were talking about doing this, so I kind of tried to think it through what I might want to talk about. And there's one, there's a lot, I've, I'm, I have to say there's a lot. I have, um, I've had a lot of close calls, like too many to list. Most of them are, with, it's funny, most of my avalanche close calls are to do with climbing, either alpine climbing or ice climbing, uh, near misses with avalanches or rocks or, you know, things like that. That's where most of it's happened. Um, Probably one of the things that probably resonates with me the most was uh, at Mustang. And you might have even been there for this. I don't know if you remember this. This was uh, 2010. And 2010, 2009-10 was a bad winter. Next to the uh, previous winter that I told you about, it was the second worst year for avalanche fatalities. I think 26 people ended up getting killed that winter. We had bad surface hoar layers. At one point, we had four active surface hoar layers in the snowpack, and it was really tense. Then I was guiding uh, casking a Mustang, and my son Ryan came to visit. And so Ryan was, at the time, uh, 11 years old. And uh, he came out with me, and uh, he was in the group, and we were having this unbelievable day, tricky day with the surface hoar. But we're having this great day, and we're out on the North Shore. Remember the North Shore? Great. Tree skiing, lots of surface hoar, but really good out there. And... Um, but I'm knocking, I'm ski cutting stuff and I know it's going off. And um, anyway, I, I think it was on run number eight or nine, Rasta Rob, you'll remember Rob, he took Ryan off a jump and Ryan hit his head and he was crying and he was, so he decides to sit out one run. So as my son, Ryan sits out the next run and on the next run, I was uh, regrouping in the trees underneath a, a 17 degree slope. And I know that because I went back and measured it afterwards and the whole slope released and caught the whole group. And I was standing there doing a snow profile, had my skis off and just, I heard someone yell avalanche. I looked up and I just got smoked by this avalanche, lost my skis, just, it was this big, I was able to hang on and not get swept away, but it just kind of pulled me. And then I, I sat up, 
I looked up and all of a sudden there was a guy hung up on a tree right in front of me screaming because he'd broken his leg. And I was just trying to get my bearings, realize all my equipment was gone. I looked beside me and uh, there was a couple guys standing there and I suddenly realized, I, th I was thinking, I think there was four people standing there a minute ago. And I said, how many people were standing here? And they're like, I don't, nobody really knew. And then I realized, holy shit, I'm missing some people. So I called all the plans and I'd screamed into the radio just before I got hit, but nobody heard me. So I was just down there and I yelling out, switch to search, switch to search. And I'm trying to talk on the radio, but nothing's working because my radio is jammed full of snow from the avalanche. And eventually I uh, started a transceiver search and I can't find one person. I cannot find somebody, no transceiver signal, nothing. And I'm just kind of like beside myself. And this isn't in the instruction book. Like now what am I going to do? I mean, a pretty, it's not a huge avalanche in the trees. And, and I'm, I'm just like trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden JP, if you remember JP, the tail guy, JP rolls down there and he's got the missing person with him. And he says, I got 17. And he counted everybody in my group. And then I was like, whew. So that was really something. Then we had to ski to the bottom where my son Ryan was. You know, I just missed getting my 11-year-old son caught. He would have been smoked because he would have been standing right beside me for sure. He would have been raked through the trees at 11 years old. Oh, you know, man. and then I had to evacuate a client who had a broken leg. The reason I couldn't find that person is because he got pushed into a tree well and he heard me yell switch to search. So he actually switched his transceiver to search just like he was supposed to. Whilst he but was in the tree well. I couldn't find him. With the oh. Exactly. So I couldn't find him. <laughs> with the transceiver. So I guess in that hindsight, you know, I, I just, you know, I could, I thought that through for months and months and months. I ended up doing a talk about it at the CA meeting and I called it margins. And what I really realized was uh, I just need to be, stop being a cocky fucker, to be honest with you. And I, I you know, I knew that surface hole was there. I knew it was there. I was ski cutting it. I was moving it away. And I guess I just thought I knew better. I thought I could get people through there. And I realized that my distance from the risk was not far enough and then, then I add my kid into the equation, and it just about made me threw up to think that I was this close to getting him involved in an avalanche at that age. And the take home for me was to just back it off. And I, I thought to myself, this risk is, is many times it's invisible risk. You know, you can't, you don't know where the edge is until you crossed it. And when you cross it, it's too late. Um, you can't know where it is otherwise. And so the only way to really protect yourself from that is to put, put distance between yourself and the risk, which is margins. So just open up the space a little more and give yourself more room from the risk was really my big take home after that. And I, I, you know, I've had near misses since then, but I like to think that I really learned my lesson there about thinking that I was good enough to be able to sneak my way through something like that and really get my ass handed to me. It was a huge yeah, lesson. Man. Well, they say the, the avalanche problem doesn't know that you're an expert, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I, but I mean, yeah. really, like 17 degree slope. I mean, that's unfathomable. I remember that winter. That was the winter I took off of working in the industry to go to woodworking school, actually. And I remember, okay. you know, going ski touring on my weekend, reading the public avalanche bulletin, and they referenced an avalanche on a, I think it was like a 16 degree slope or 17. So it must have been your avalanche. I, did, I never realized at the time or until now that that was uh, your story. Yeah. So that's totally crazy. It was really something. You know, I went back. That's how come I know the angle. I went back and measured everything out like later. Turns out that the same day that I had that happen, a snowmobiler was killed just a few kilometers away in the Perry River. And um, that was the first fatality of the season. And then it just went off after that over the next couple of months. And it ended up at 26. But I was, uh, I was part of the initial cohort that, that realized to realize, oh, my God, look what's going on around here. But, you know, 
that's another thing I've noticed. Um, there seems to be always a few unfortunate souls in usually early January who are the first ones to figure out that we're having one of these special or unusual winters. And it takes a few people before the rest of us go, whoa, and we pull it right back. Um, and I was that person in that year. Man, it's crazy because we, we talk about like non-event feedback. You know, it's a tough learning environment because you don't necessarily get that feedback whether your decision was good or not. You know, you either made a good decision or you got totally. lucky and it looks the exact same um, until <laughs> you didn't get lucky. And then all of a sudden you learn the hard way how, how close you were. So I can yeah. I can see how easy it would have been to be there, especially I mean, you said it was about your ninth run or something. I'm sure at some point you start to get yeah. confidence with the conditions and your ability to handle it. And, all the other stuff. I couldn't wait to ski there. I mean, I love skiing in the North Shore. I love skiing through there. And I knew the line. I just, I thought, oh, I can go down this ramp. This is a low angle ramp. You know what it was? Uh, 17 degree slope, but there was a little corner. I bet it was five meters square. It wasn't even big. But I went, when I went back and looked at it, one of my guests went off to the right and slashed up onto that one little place where it just steepened up. That's where it got triggered. So it was probably 30 degrees for one little tiny area where the slope reared up and it started the avalanche there and then it just propagated this whole low angled thing which ran down through the trees and over us. That is so it truly crazy. is the steep spot on the slope that matters. No kidding. Oh my God, that's unreal. Holy, so in terms of your alpine climbing career, you know, non-guiding non related, um, I mean, you've done some pretty crazy things. I think I remember you talking about Leila Peak in, uh, in the Himalayas and. So is there any oh. particular, uh, you, you've done stuff in the St. Elias, all these uh, cool lines. Uh, you've been uh, telling some really neat stories with photos on your Instagram over the course of the last winter, which I've really enjoyed because they always quite well written and, and funny, and that sort of thing. And I don't know, are there any of those big alpine objectives that, that come to mind as like particularly special for, for whatever the reason may be? Yeah, oh yeah, there's tons of them. I mean, I've really been enjoying those. I'm glad you liked them this winter. It's funny. Um, I got, I got a slide scanner. That's what happened. And so I started, you know, I've got thousands of slides from all these years. And so I, I would start looking at them. It's like all these stories just come back. So actually what I was doing is just really enjoying sitting down and having a coffee on a Saturday morning or something and writing down some of these stories and then finding a few pictures. So I started sticking them on Instagram. I really was enjoying that little fun little storytelling. So I've been slowly but surely working my way through the stories. Uh, I don't know where I was. Probably the coolest climb I did in the Himalayas was um, was in India, uh, Scottish Pillar on Bagarathi 3, which is in the Garwal. So it's, I don't know if you've heard of Shivling, um, famous place, uh, right on the headwaters of the Ganges River. I went with Norman. You probably know Norman. And, which um, Norm Winter? Norman Winter, yeah. yeah. Me and Norman, once. Brian Webster, and James Blench went in there, and Paul Bernston. We climbed it in two different groups. Uh, this was in 95, I think. Anyway, it's like, a, it's about a five or 6,000 foot wall. The first uh, two thirds to three quarters of it is uh, granite. So it's like, I don't know, I think it's 25 or 30 pitches of granite. And then there's a big ice face on top of it. So, you know, it, it was just a beautiful mountain. If you've ever seen the line, that's always been the thing for me. I'm totally drawn to the architecture of the mountain. So I'm looking at this stuff and it's just this absolutely pristine pillar. It just begs to be climbed. And I think the whole process of these things, you know, you see the picture, you dream about it, you plan it, you go there, and then you're, when you're actually able to execute it and get to the top, it's just such an unbelievably rewarding feeling. So, I, you know, for me, it's always been about never the highest mountain that I could find. I've never been a Mount Everest guy or anything like that. Uh, I've always been about architecture and lines that really stand out as some 
something beautiful that I really want to climb. And this Art Beggar Athie was probably the most beautiful. That's so cool. I mean, not not being a, a big like alpine climber, that seems to me that must be the culmination of like a lot of planning. I mean, like what's the that sort of elapsed time from starting to have some of these crazy ideas and really working them in, in earnest, and then actually getting yourself to the top? I mean, we're talking months here of planning. Oh, it's a but with that stuff, you know. I you know I haven't planned one of these for years. We're talking way back in the day. Um, you know, I did a bunch of them. I did some guiding over there, and uh, I remember guiding a couple guys up Palma de Blom. So that's that took the better part of a year because you got to get the permit, and then you know you got to get organized with the tracking company. You know, you can do it quicker, I guess, probably more efficient these days. Like when I was planning some of these things way back then, it was like you'd hear your fax machine go off at three in the morning from India. You know, and the bureaucracy, the Indian bureaucracy, is really something to reckon with. So. It was a bit of a battle. Uh, I suspect it's a little easier these days. I, I don't know. But uh, for, for me, back when I was organizing expeditions, then it was a better part of a year from when we get the idea so we can really get executed, get the permit, get the cash, pull it all together and get over there. Fantastic. That's cool. It must be really satisfying when you stand on top of that thing. It is. It's even more satisfying when you walk off the bottom of it and get back to base camp and look up at it. Yeah, I guess the top's only halfway, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. man, that's very cool. Well, I, I feel like we could keep having this conversation for for ages. There's a lot of really interesting things to discuss, and you know, you've, uh, uh, figuratively speaking, touched the lives of a lot of people that work in this industry. So, you know, thanks for for all the hard effort that you put into. Thank uh, you. It doesn't seem like you're done anytime soon. Just I uh, can still hear the passion there, and uh, I don't know, maybe your, uh, your photo projects is going to turn into a book or something. I don't know. Is that that in the I works? Hope so. Oh yeah, I'd love to write a book. Honestly, I'd like to write a few. That's kind of one of my dreams. I just can't do it. I, you know, I, I, I'm still, I'm still making the book. Like I feel like I'm still out there all the time doing stuff. Things are happening all the time. I don't really have time to, to write the book. I mean, I'd love to do that tomorrow. I love writing. So anyway, one of these days when I slow down a little bit, I'll, I'd like to think that I'll, I'll do that. We'll oh, see. That's pretty, you're still pretty active and getting after it. So. Uh... To, to write the memoir until you're done, I guess, eh? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Hoping one day it'll get there. But yeah, no, I still remain pretty psyched. I think what's, when I reflect back and think about it all, what's been really interesting is just how it's changed, you know? Like, my motivations have changed a lot. I used to be so excited to, like, you know, climb the big north faces in the Rockies. Well, you know, I'm not going to be going up on the big north faces of the Rockies anymore. I just, it's not, I'm, I'm, too, I'm older than, oh, too old for that now. I just don't, I can't handle the risk. It's interesting. You get there and it's, it's what's been one of the more challenging things for me is just to come to terms with that kind of stuff. And um, to, to realize that I need to be motivated for the proper reasons. Like um, for years, I wanted to climb the North face of Alberta. I tried it five times. I've been pretty high on it. I've never actually climbed it. So because of that, I was always thinking, Oh, I got to get back to Mount Alberta. I got to climb Mount Alberta. And then I realized that I was like, I actually, I thought I wanted to climb Mount Alberta because I always did, but I actually didn't. You know what I mean? And I realized, you know what? I got to do this for the right reasons. I cannot be going to places like that unless it's like 100% pure motivation coming out of my heart. I have to know I'm going to climb this face and be so psyched. I cannot be tentative and wondering. So, uh, you know, make, coming to these realizations over life and realizing that your risk changes as you get older, you have kids, you know, your career changes, whatever. It's all okay. It's definitely been a real battle for me getting to accept that stuff over the years but I, I like to think I'm kind of coming to terms with it a little bit more now and coming to understand that everything changes as you move along and that's just the way it's supposed to be 
is there a transition like is your son getting into the into the mountains and stuff with you still too like that's kind of a neat way to have that uh focus shift from maybe just getting after it in the most badass way possible to uh sharing oh, that yeah. with the friends and family and, and, a, and maybe more mellow with maybe, maybe in a more meaningful way yeah in some ways like it's funny so my son's name is ryan ryan lives in revelstoke and he's lived there for the last five years and he he's a free skier you know he's got a few sponsorships he's on the minot ski team he skis for liberty skis and he's just getting after it all the time so every time i look at instagram there's some new backflip or big 360 off a pillow stack coming and um it i love watching it you know i absolutely love it i it's funny just about every day I'm out there wherever I am and I looking over on the horizon thinking, God, I wonder where he is. Every time the avalanche hazard goes up, I'm like, mm, sending him a text, you know, it's high today. Watch your ass. I have full, full trust in him, but it's just a little bit different when it's your kid who's out there. But you know, one of the best experiences of my whole life has been, I've been skiing with him since he was this big. And uh, we, some of my biggest ski lines I've got to ski with him and I always have the best adventures with him. So uh, I, I just consider myself, that's probably one of the best things about life has been able to, have him as a ski partner and I, I know that it's just going to keep like that for a while so it's a really good part oh man that's super cool and i'm sure your communications on a whole different level to uh many of the other partners you might find yourself out there with yeah that's cool does he have any aspirations to head down the guiding route do you think or work i don't think so thing? no i don't think so you know he's uh he's tried a little bit of it you know he's, he's he was in japan last year and he's he's he, i mean he could i know he could in a second if he wanted to but i think his interests lie elsewhere you know what he likes to ski and I, I don't think he's too interested in helping other people, you know, tighten their bindings and, you know, make sure they don't have a blister is my <laughs> sense. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Sometimes yeah, you just got to keep it for yourself. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, one, one final question there. Um, I kind of remember uh, you telling a crazy story about uh, a rescue that happened in Banff that was highly unusual, involved the police and ended up with long lining <laughs> a possibly inebriated naked couple out of a canyon after uh, after flooding a hotel or something. Is that a story that you want to dive into at all? Wow. Well, I think, yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I think you've maybe mixed a couple stories there together. There was a naked couple. There was a hotel. It was flooded, but I don't think we long-lined them out of the hotel. So that might be a different story. <laughs> well, I thought they'd like fallen into the river canyon or something, and that's where you guys had to sling them out the next morning. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I you mixed the stories together. You, you're right. You're right. It's just, this is what I mean. They, they, they flooded the rim rock. Then they ran down the hill through the night, ended up in the river, freezing cold, hypothermic. And we picked them out of there in the morning. I forgot all about that. <laughs> well, it shows how crazy your job is that you totally forget about something that like should be a, a Hollywood movie or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'll just tell you, because you got me thinking near the same area a couple years ago, I got a really kind of a wild call over there. It was like, um, I was on call, so I'm the one getting the calls in the night. Got called at about 11 o'clock at night, and uh, dispatch puts it through, and she says, uh, I've got a guy here. He's uh, way up on the side of Sulphur Mountain, and he has no idea how he got there. <laughs> I got the GPS coordinate. I take a look, and sure enough, he's up in the cliffs. He's nowhere near a trail. He is in the middle of nowhere up on the side of the mountain it's january and it's the middle of the night and they get him on the line and i talk to him and he has no idea how he got there like he, he woke up there basically. holy is that sleepwalking gone wrong or no what? the last thing he remembered was um being in calgary three days earlier wow and all of a sudden he woke up up on the side of the mountain in the middle of the night and um he phoned his dad and his dad said call 911 
So uh, we went up there, we skied for a while through the forest, then we went to feet, and then we climbed up through the rocks, um, and we found them on this little tiny ledge, just clinging to a tree, just hanging onto a tree, completely frozen solid, his feet, everything was frozen and, and covered in ice. And so we put a harness on him and we attached him to the wall and we, um, my partner got the ropes all set up and I wrapped him in down blankets and, and heat blankets and I hugged his feet and we kind of brought him back to life in terms of warmth. And then we lowered him down through the cliff bands until we got to a flat spot and then we dug a big ledge and we had a sleeping bag and a stove and we basically put this guy to bed, made him some tea and some soup, warmed him right up. And then we spent the night in this tiny little ledge with him. And then uh, at first light, two of my colleagues uh, came in on the helicopter and picked him out at sort of seven in the morning or whenever the light, first light, they picked him out of there. And then we walked down and uh, came out the next morning. But really, I, I remember just thinking, I can't, this guy, I felt so bad for him. He's a young guy, nice guy. Uh, so, you know, he, I think he, he, he must, I don't really know what actually happened to him. It was some sort of, I don't know, it was a first relapse or first uh, experience with this thing, but he just lost track of everything and had no memory. Unbelievable. So you get the call at 11 at night and, and sort of like, what's the elapsed time to getting to this guy? I mean, that's an epic adventure in the daytime just to get to a guy on a ledge like that. Yeah. All that in the dark. Yeah. It's a few hours. I mean, by the time we go to go to town, we get a briefing from the RCMP. You know, and, and you know, we get these briefings, and, and you know, you're a little bit nervous, especially with something like that. You think, oh, I hope he's, you know, I hope he's sane. Like, I don't know what's what kind of guy am I going to run into up there? Is he armed? You know, I don't know what's. Well, who am I running into? So by the time we get into Banff, you know, we make the hot tea, we get the soup, we get our packs ready, we brief, get briefed from the police, uh, we get it all set up. It takes a couple hours, and then then took us it probably took us three hours from the time I got called. I bet I got to him at two in the morning at two thirty or something like that. That's really incredible. I mean, think about the level of service of public safety that that is in a national park. It's completely free to the public. I mean, as a member of a volunteer search and rescue in Nelson, if you get a call like that, that somebody's on a cliff in the middle of the night, it's like, okay, sweet, we're going to go out on the Forest Service Road and maybe try to establish like a command post like near to the guy. But there's no way we're putting people on the ground in the middle of the night because we're, we're not professionals. And um, and that's probably beyond the uh, Abilities of what we can pull off in the middle of the night. I mean, it's just totally incredible that this is uh, available as a service. And I mean, it's mm. just, yeah, that's wild. Blowing well, we, right we now, did, in many ways, we'd be the same, Dom. On like, we don't go out at night all the time. I've definitely, you know, there's lots of calls where I've been like, all right, well, I'm coming to get you at first light. I can't get there tonight. But just this, this, the way this one was, that, you know, I, first of all, I kind of knew the terrain. Like, I know that area. And I thought, well, I can get up there in the dark. And, um, and I also knew that this guy might not make it. You could just tell this guy, you know, if we don't get up there tonight, I don't know, sometimes, you know, you got a warm night and two people are just, they're stuck out and they got to, they're doing okay. I can leave them all night. Just this sure. one, you know, you get this feeling, you know, when you're, you know, you're, you're used to it. You can tell when you get the calls, like, I got to go for this one. I got to, I got to chase this one down. Or I, you can almost, I think that's one of the most important skills of being a rescuer in the end is understanding when to launch and when to not launch. Because you got to know, you listen to these stories and you kind of put it together and you think, well, I need to launch. I just know it. This is real. And uh, we can't delay. And there's other times you think, you know what, this is, I can't launch. It's too dark. It's too, there's too much snow in the night. We don't really know where we're going. We could get into trouble. We'll have to wait till first light. That's, some of those are the biggest and most important decisions you make or before you even leave. I think actually whether to, whether to launch or not. That's amazing. That's really cool. And great outcome, obviously. Uh, yeah. for, for that particular story. 
You know, there's one other rescue that I wanted to ask you about, actually, well, since we're going down the rabbit hole here. There's like a just totally amazing companion rescue that happened in the Rockies, I can't remember, a couple of years ago now. And this uh, individual is buried super, super deep. And there was only two or three other people in the party, and they managed to get down, I don't know how many meters to this person and, and save their life. I mean, they, they survived yeah. the, the ordeal. I was wondering if you could just give us the uh, Cole's notes on that story, because it's totally amazing. It's an incredible story. Yeah, so there was three of them. Um, they're ice climbers out for a ski tour to scope with their binoculars. So they uh, they went up, uh, if you know it, they went up the Moraine Lake Road, and then they were going to go over Sentinel Pass and out Paradise Valley. It's a beautiful loop. Sentinel Pass is steep. And uh, so anyway, they're skiing up Sentinel Pass. Uh, they're just about at the top, and the whole slope rips out. And the lowest person on the slope got buried um, four meters, 400 centimeters deep. So they they... Of course, they can tell that they know she's deep. They can't hit with a probe, nothing. So they just basically narrow the signal down and start digging and start digging and start digging. And then they, you know, they probe it eventually. And they got, I can't remember the times, but I mean, I've seen the pictures, you know, to be per they did an unbelievable life-saving job. Um, to be honest with you, I think they got pretty lucky, really. I mean, you can't succeed in something like that without having some luck on your side because the hole, if you see the pictures, it was a rabbit hole. By the time they got down there, it was just a tube. I do remember they, the photos. It's just amazing. They, they more or less nailed the airway right off the bat, too. It's not like much. they found her foot first. Exactly. Like, if you found a foot at four meters, think how much longer it would take you to get to the airway. Like, you'd be a, I don't know, can't even imagine. Like, they couldn't even really stand down in there. It was a narrow hole. But they luckily hit her airway, and uh, they got her out. Incredible. And we flew in there. I wasn't involved, but we flew in there and showed up after she was already out of the snow and everything. So we just flew them out and got the story from them. They were pretty shaken, but... Uh, I think she was released from the hospital that night. It was a full recovery and really just an unbelievably good rescue. That's wild, man. Oh, it seems it, like, it. oh, absolutely. Like that is a cardio effort, like oh. nothing else, you know, to be able to pull that yeah. off. I mean, because was it two or three other rescuers in that? Uh, there was two, just guy and a girl. So it was two girls and one guy. And uh, one of the women was buried. So it was uh, one woman and one guy on top who did the digging. Unbelievable. Yeah, you'd just be completely guessed. Oh, yeah. Motivated as all get out, but you'd be totally exhausted by the you end of that. Be, yeah, you'd be gassed, that's for sure. And you know, that story, actually, it's funny. That was a, I, I work with Arcteryx as well a lot, and I was um, working with them at that point on the idea of avalanche transceiver pockets in pants. Big proponent I was. I just wanted to put my, I put my transceiver in the thigh pocket of my pants, and I had done that for a number of years, and I was, helping them develop and prototype, you know, different kinds of pockets on the thighs. And that rescue changed my entire perspective because of what we just talked about. So they hit her airway, but imagine if they hit her foot, how long it would have taken them to get. So I thought to myself, and I'd heard lots of people say this, but I didn't really buy into it. I hadn't thought it through until that rescue. When I realized, I think I want my transceiver as close to my airway as I can get it. You know, that's a contentious uh, topic, you know, with people that work in the industry. I know a lot of ski guides that put it in their thigh pocket or people that teach a lot of AST courses, you know, because they've got to access it quite yeah. a bit. You know, morning beacon checks or that sort of thing. I've seen the argument of people that get right through the trees and their transceiver gets smashed, you know, from the trauma. And then I've seen the argument about it being closer to your airway. And to me, it seems fairly cut and dry. But, you know, it's so interesting that people are pretty on the uh, one side or the other of that 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 uh, topic so it's cool that you kind of went from one perspective to the other did that it, end the research on those pants 
What? What's that? Did that change your perspective, like in terms of those pants? Like, did that project stop? Or no, no, I think it's still going on. But I, you know, I stopped pushing hard for that. I sent my perspectives in there. You know what it, it was? It's it's the concept of a deep burial. Yeah, I guess I just hadn't thought it through. Like, you know, it's one thing to think to yourself, "Oh, he's fifty centimeters under. We'll just dig down and hit him with the probe." And you know, well, there's the there's the uh, the arm. Let's go to the airway. And you know, okay, that's probably pretty reasonable. But that's 50 centimeters down. I mean, but when you come up with the idea, like we just discussed that case study, when you're digging a rabbit hole and you're down 400, and if you find that, that transceiver in the leg at 400 down, uh, you got a long way to go to get to the airway. So it was that, I it was the deep, really deep burial concept that made me think it through further and realize I want my transceiver near my airway. So now I keep it on a breast pocket right here, and my phone goes in my leg pocket. Oh, there you go. Just switch them around. I mean, I keep the phone in the leg pocket, with the camera and everything. And then there also, you get good separation between the two like that anyway. So you're not using the, the harness, you're using the chest pocket like a... Well, just because I, I have a good piece of clothing with a root, like it's long underwear. So it's underneath a few layers and it's got a great chest pocket. So that is what I use. Otherwise, I use the harness. I, I like okay. the harness too, actually, but I prefer this chest pocket. It also keeps it even closer to my airway. It's like right above my left breast is where this transceiver sits. Oh, and it's uh, nice nice separation off my phone too if i have my phone on my thigh pocket yeah true enough if you get kind of curled in a ball or something like that and your thigh ends up right beside your belly where the the harness would hold it that's oh that's super interesting grant yeah it's probably not a topic that's going to go away but i think i i agree with your opinion about keeping yeah. close to the airway amazing uh, any close calls come to mind on rescues you know where the rescuer safety has been something that i don't know you're one side or the other of the line well, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, we, have, we keep track of our near misses. I mean, you know, slinging is the biggest thing for us. We do a lot of slinging. We do about 75 sling rescues or short haul rescues. I think they call them in the United States. We do about 75 of those a year. We're always game on for those things. Um, you know, for us, even, even the slightest miss clip, even if it's not critical, if we don't do it perfectly, we consider it a near miss. We have, that has to be executed perfectly. So, uh, we don't have many near misses, but, um, you know, from little things left and right. So we're paying very close attention to the sling operations, uh, you know, to make sure that we don't make any mistakes. I, I got to say, no real near misses on rescues that I can think of coming up here. Always, you know, a lot. most of our stuff, to be honest with you, is on training days. Oh, yeah. We have, you know, when we're out skiing or climbing or just trying to, you know, that that's where we're most at risk. And around the helicopter. Any helicopter operations are high risk as well. It's easy to get complacent around the helicopter because we spend so much time in it. Uh, so we're also super careful. And we've really uh, evolved our operation in the last five years to be way more checklist based. Like, you know, it used to just be like we had to remember everything. And it's funny, there's so many things to remember. So we've really moved to, I guess we follow the lead of the aircraft industry. You know, there's lots of books and the checklist manifesto. There's lots of research on this. And so we've tried to keep it reasonable, but we've really moved to uh, checklist-based protocols for critical operations where, you know, we pull out before we go, uh, we run through this checklist and we have to run through it. And we have to, we have a risk assessment that we do on our phone for every rescue we do. We actually go through a formal little protocol on either our phone or else we have a piece of paper for it, but we want to have a record of our decisions and it's lowest down a little bit. And I think that's really important um, that we always, always remind ourselves that, um, you know, you know, this one, it's, it's not my emergency and it sounds kind of, um, maybe cruel, but it, it isn't my emergency. I'm there to help. 
but it's not my emergency. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to put myself at extremely high risk. I yeah, mean, the last thing you want to do is create another emergency. Yeah. Just slow, down, slow down a little bit. Like even things is like now, unless we specify it, we shut the helicopter off before we put the sling on. Well, we didn't always do that. Like we get so used to putting the sling line on that we would just off and land, make the plan with the pilot and go put the sling on and do it. But we've realized that just the act of shutting down the helicopter takes the pressure off, allows us to take a breath, allows us to run through our checklists a bit slower. It might cost us five minutes, but in a non-critical rescue, who cares? So just any opportunity we have to slow it down and uh, be methodical, uh, we're taking it wherever we can. And I think it's making a real difference. I mean, back to your risk uh, talk, you got vulnerability and exposure and you're pretty darn vulnerable on the end of a long line and it, yeah. your exposure time is high if you're doing 75 calls a year. So you might as well take whatever yeah. steps you can to eliminate as much of the risk as possible. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're really aware that's that's one of the real risk points for us is that kind of work. So it's always sort of all hands on deck whenever we're doing that, those kind of operations. And talking uh, helicopters, you guys are heli bombing as well. Like I know you've got some Gazex yep. and some Wiesen towers in the park there, but does that like a regular part of your arsenal? Yep. Yeah, we have uh, twelve. Uh, one, two, three. We have nine Gazex horns and uh, three Wiesen towers, and the rest of it we all do do by heli bombing. So actually, it's a pretty good setup these days. It's our high frequency paths on the high traffic roads. We've got the Gazex and the Wiesen. So mid cycle, middle of the night, we can punch the stuff we're really worried about and then we just got to twiddle our fingers through the night and then uh, we heli bomb the rest of it so a typical cycle for us takes probably four days to clean up we had a big cycle last week it took four days by the time we start with gazax on the high frequency pass and then do helicopter cleanup in all the different areas better part of four days that's a big program you guys got going there it's amazing like i keep asking you questions for the rest of the night (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I appreciate you taking time to have a chat with me, uh, Grant. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome. I enjoyed it. You know, I look forward to when we can share a beer uh, not on the screen here, right? Eh? That'll be fun. You bet. Absolutely. And uh, and make some turns out there as well. Yeah. Well, that was a great conversation with Grant Statham. Thanks, Grant, for joining me. And thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. And please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get Caleb some five-star reviews. He's been putting out a great podcast for years, and those five-star reviews really help out. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Head over to MikeT.com and check out some of Mike's work. Music for this episode was written and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks, Chris, for your contribution to the podcast. This episode was produced by Wes Gregg. Thanks, Wes. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, keep having fun out there.